Well, good morning again. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Where we will continue to examine Paul's exhortations as it relates to the gospel being lived out in our marriages and family relations and otherwise. Before we get to the passage today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do love you. Thank you for this glorious time that you've given us to be gathered together as your people. This unique opportunity is special in your sight. It's been ordained by you. It's something that you draw great pleasure from and delight in. And we ask, the Lord, that you would give us hearts that are attentive to that, that we would glorify you in um, the worship that we offer, uh, both in reading of the word and the preaching of the word and, and singing and lifting up our hearts to you. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for saving us and rescuing us from the domain of darkness. Help us to be grateful for that. Help us to be people who think of that miracle often, who rejoice in the story of redemption and how you saw fit to save to yourself a people. May you be glorified in all that we do and say today. Bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in the name of our blessed Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12. Of course, these are familiar passages to us by now, I would hope. Uh, We have been spending... Um, a good deal of time here and looking at what these passages have for us. It's important. Uh, the Word of God is deep and its, its depths can never be fully plumbed in terms of the content. So every time we come back to it, there's something new and refreshing and encouraging, convicting, exhorting. So Colossians 3, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, And just please pay attention to the words. We don't want to be mere hearers of the word, but we want to be people who are doers of the word as well. And one of the ways that we do it is to listen to it and to understand the meaning of the words to make application. And so these words are very important for you and for me. And so they should be words that are given great attention And Paul makes certain that we're identified in a way that's significant, as he says, verse 12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. That heart comes out of what God has done. So we have as a part of that kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another, the principle of forbearance. And forgiving each other, the principle of forgiveness. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ control or rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks through him to God the Father. So now that we have an identification made of who we are and what we're called to be, Paul would anticipate that this new creational lifestyle is going to play itself out in real time, both within the church and within the home. And so in verse 18, moving from the dynamics of the body life of the church and personal relationships uh, that would be covered by those uh, verses in verses 12 through 17, he moves to husbands and wives. Verse 18, wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. So what we find here as we move into this imperative section of, of, of the book of Colossians are important instructions that Paul is giving for the relationships that we have throughout our lifetime. And what Paul's point is, is simply this. It is the gospel, not practical steps or the smooth legalism of the false teacher, or even more self-discipline, don't touch, don't eat, don't handle, as you recall. It is the gospel that is God's provision for the power to live within a marriage as God designed. And it is the power of the gospel to live within the context of relationship as God has designed within the church. We cannot lose sight of this singular point from the book of Colossians. Paul has been laboring, beginning with chapter 3, to make certain that the doctrine that we have been taught in the preceding two chapters, and indeed in the first half of chapter 3, play out in real time, in gospel real time, in our lives, both in terms of our personal relationships and within the home. If you miss that point, you miss the whole point. You miss the whole point. We talk about the gospel all the time. We talk about the wonders of the gospel. We talk about how the power of the gospel is able to save. Yet I think we often forget about the gospel when we move beyond the point of salvation. And Paul is saying to us that we cannot do that. That the gospel provides to us the power, the motivation, and the means by which we can glorify God in our relationships with each other, both personally and within the home as husbands and wives. Christ, through the gospel, doesn't give us a mere moral makeover. We're not just better people. We are changed people. We are transformed people. We are new creation in Jesus Christ. We have been people who have been tailored and fitted with a new nature, so much so that that new nature expels and begins to push out those things that are attendant with the old man, and the new man shines forth in the manner in which he and she interacts with those around them. In the home, it becomes that which controls the relationship between a husband and a wife. It controls the relationship between parents and children. It controls the relationship between employees and employers. It controls the relationship between government and those governed. We find that the gospel has a sweeping effect because it changes people completely. We find that the gospel is, is so thorough 
and the consequences of its application that it changes people to the point that they act differently. And that's Paul's expectation. That is indeed Paul's anticipation. It's interesting to me that Paul, in chapter 3 of Colossians, does not resort to the same tactics as the false teacher. He's not imposing upon, upon them the ideas of mere morality. He is communicating to them the transforming work of the gospel in their lives, and he expects and anticipates that those whom God has saved will be changed in such a manner that the reality of it will be demonstrated in how they treat each other, both personally and within the home. This is about the gospel. Jesus in the context of our salvation, gives us a whole new identity. We don't become saints by our actions, but we are called to become more and more who we are already in Jesus Christ. That's the point. You're not becoming a saint because you're submitting to your husband or you're loving your wife. You are already a saint and you're playing out the reality of the transformative work of the gospel in your life by the manner in which you relate to your husband and your wife and to each other. It begs this question, if these evidence are not present, are you a believer? Are you a believer? Paul's anticipation is that they would be there. Paul's anticipation is that this, this message, unlike the teaching of the false teacher, is not a self-made religion containing self-abasement and the flowery things that might appear to be of import to people, but rather, and of no value against fleshly indulgence, as he says in 2.23, but rather the transformative work of the gospel changes people to such a degree that these relations are indeed possible and expected. And so for us, we can't remember, we can't, we can't forget or lose sight of that important principle that Paul is building this entire chapter on in the context of these types of imperatives. This is not about a mere moral makeover. We are not just better people. We are new creation. We are new creation. The old man's clothes just weren't taken off and simply washed and maybe uh, starched and ironed and put back on. No, we have been robed in new righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have been given a new capacity, new identities, new abilities, new desires, new inclinations that then cause us to live out the reality of the gospel in our lives with each other. This is the whole point. And I think it's a point that's being lost upon the church. We can't lose sight of this. And in the context of our marriages, it's very important for Paul He's emphasizing, it's significant to me, that transitioning from these relationships within the church and within our society in general, he moves specifically into the home, and he gets very detailed about it. We've already talked about some of the language that he's used. And what we also see here for Paul is that marriage is indeed important. Marriage is important. The home is important. The home provides stability and protection, and a guard against so many different things that the world has to offer. And within the home, there ought to be gospel clarity demonstrated by how mom and dad relate to each other, how husbands and wives relate to each other, how parents relate to their children. We are different from the world. 
Unlike the world, we honor marriage. Unlike the world, we esteem marriage. Understanding that holy matrimony is ordained by God. Let us be reminded, if we can, through the traditional marriage ceremony language. I'm going to take the time to read it because it's significant. Because I think oftentimes we lose sight of it. Dearly beloved, we have gathered together in the presence of God to witness and bless the joining together of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Almighty God established the bond and covenant of marriage and creation as a sign of the mystical union between Christ and his church. Our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and it is commended by Holy Scripture to be held in honor among all people, to be held in honor. Our government just passed a, a law that dis- dishonors marriage thoroughly, but God still honors it. It is to be honored among all people. The union of husband and wife and heart, body and mind was ordained by God for the procreation of children and their nurture and the knowledge and love of the Lord, for mutual joy and for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity to main purity so that husbands and wives with all the household of God might serve as holy and undefiled members of the body of Christ and for the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom in family, church, and society to the praise of his holy name. Therefore, marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, deliberately, and in accordance with the purpose for which it was ordained by Almighty God. Marriage is a big deal to God. Marriage is important to God. Those words have meaning. Those words are based upon the Word of God itself. And they're a good reminder to us in a culture in which the marriage has been diminished to absolutely nonsense. It means nothing. People can marry trees and their pets and their pet rock. And another per, a, a man can marry a man and a woman can marry a woman and it's perfectly fine. Or a man can marry a woman who's pretending to be a man. Or whatever it is today. Who knows? It's an affront to God. Severe judgment is coming. Mark my words. Marriage is for the reasons that God has ordained. And we need to be mindful of those things. I think it's a good reminder. I now pronounce you all man and wife. (laughs) So, Paul here, as we were looking at this, communicates some important principles that we've been examining in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. So we understand the context here. Paul speaking to the ladies of Colossae who are married and are are being exhorted in the word based upon the gospel predicates that have been laid, the foundations that have been built up in the gospel says to the wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. We took the time to unpackage the meaning of that. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. I've not gone through that process of unpackaging that verse yet, but we will in time. But before I do that, I wanted to take the time as I began the last time to talk about the principle of mutual love within a marriage. Certainly there would be an anticipation that there would be a loving relationship between the husband and the wife. Titus 2.4 speaks to the idea of a wife loving her husband. Colossians 3.19, husbands love your wives. So clearly this principle is present within Scripture. And the last time we were together, we considered the idea of the mutual duty to love each other. And we quoted some Puritans and we laughed about that and we're going to do that again today. 
And we understood from looking at this principle of mutual love that love is the most significant and fundamental mutual duty within a marriage. What fun is a marriage without mutual love? And some of the language that the Puritans used was colorful. The ideas of a marriage without love is, is quite disconcerting, could be quite challenging. What we find then from Scripture and from those who exhort us in these things, that a good marriage is one in which the husband and wife faithfully show love towards each other. Can't imagine it would be otherwise. Certainly would not be any fun. And so we consider the necessity of this mutual love, that love is the life and soul of marriage. One pastor noted, as I said before, Love is the life and soul of marriage, without which it differs as much from itself as a rotten apple from a sound one, and as a carcass from a living body. Yea, verily, it is a most miserable and uncomfortable society, and no better than a very living death. <laughs> a loveless marriage. Indeed, that would be a challenge. We considered many of the exhortations that those who have gone before us have given us with regard to the issue of mutual love within a marriage, and one of the things I don't want to do is to look at the passages contained in Colossians 3 in some sterile laboratory sense. Paul's anticipating that there is a vibrant, uh, vivacious, fun relationship between a husband and a wife. This is not to be some sterile, cold application, walking into the kitchen in the morning, wife, I love you. Um, uh, husband, I submit to you. Great, let's have a good day. <laughs> That's not any fun. I was going to say something. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> Pastor Daniel Rogers aptly noted that a marriage without love is nothing but a carcass void of life. Since mutual love is the vital spirit and heartblood of marriage. And that love, out of that love flows the voluntary actions that two people who are in love with each other have. They, they do things for each other. They care for each other. They make sacrifices. Um, it's, it, it is, as one has noted, love is to the marriage as the echo is to the voice. It is an answer in the heart to the consent of the mouth so that the lovers who marry enter into a relationship which not only cannot be broken, but which would not dare to break because of the love they enjoy in it. The idea being that the love that's found between a husband and a wife in the context especially of the redeemed is that it is one that's consuming and wonderful and pleasant and glorifying to the Lord. And of course, within the context of that, uh, we understand then that um, there's a strength that flows out of this mutual love. A marriage that does not contain a mutual love does not have the strength that God would intend for it to have. Marriage is, as I've noted before, the closest relationship and therefore requires the dearest affection, as one Puritan pastor put it. Who should be in one heart but those who share one bed, one table, and one house? This love is no common love. It is a love as unique as the marriage relationship itself and as singular as the spouse to whom it is given. And since it is based on the love between Christ and his church, a love so fervent that she is said to be sick with love for him in Song, Song of Solomon verse two, verse five, chapter 2, verse 5, and one that was so great that he would lay down his life for her, that this mutual love is the strongest of all loves. And because of this, 
as I concluded last time when we spoke of these things to transition over, this type of love, this mutual love, is of, of such a strong bond, of such a strong nature, that it actually alters and changes the dynamic of the relationship between people and relationships within family. And because of it, a man and a woman are willing to leave their families and friends so they can cleave as like glue to each other. That's the principle behind what we're taught in Scripture. That was certainly what God intended when he gave Eve to Adam. In the context of that relationship, they became bound together. And it's significant that even though Adam had the Lord to walk with in the cool of the evening, he was still lonely for somebody more like him in the context of having a relationship that way. And so he brought to him one that he could join his heart to in a loving, compassionate, mutual way that was significant and beautiful in the eyes of God. We lose sight of all these things and the disparaging comments and the chicanery attached to marriage today, the manner in which people enter into it such, in such a trivial and lighthearted manner, disregarding what God has ordained it to be about and for. We need to be reminded as the saints of God what God sees in marriage and why God ordained marriage and why marriage is important and why we ought to be esteeming marriage and exhorting those who govern us to esteem it as well. The civil magistrate is intended and designed by God to do that which is good, and he has ordained that marriage is good in the context between a man and a woman, not between a man and a tree or a man and a man or a woman and a woman or otherwise, but the way that God has ordained it. We need to be instilling within our children the idea that what the world has to offer in the context of marriage is utterly contrary to what the Word of God is offering and what the Word of God has ordained. Well, as we consider the idea of this mutual love, we should consider the nature of it. What is the nature of this mutual love? When a, when a husband loves his wife, when a wife loves her husband, when there's that mutual consent and working with each other in the context of the marriage, what is it that that look, what is that? Well, first and foremost, a husband and wife are to love each other with a strong, fervent, and steady love. Not with a love that waxes and wanes with the tide of beauty, dress, or riches, nor that fluctuates with emotions and lusts, which is so part and parcel of our culture today, the friends with benefits culture. As long as you've got money and look good, I'll be your friend. Marriage by God was ordained to be one that stood the test of time, that stood the test of age, that stood the test of illness and ailment. And deprivation. Pastor Isaac Ambrose would write this. This love is a sweet, loving, and tender-hearted pouring out of their hearts with much affectionate dearness into each other's bosoms. It is an entire love. It's a fulsome love, a love that pours itself out between spouses constantly and without reservation in a variety of expressions, gestures, looks, and actions. He would go on to write, This marital love is not raised suddenly in a pang of affection ebbing and flowing, but it's a habited and settled love planted in them by God, whereby in a constant, equal, and cheerful consent of spirit they carry themselves towards each other. Pastor Robert Bolton would write this, 
this duty of mutual love is a drawing into action and keeping it in exercise, the habit of conjugal affection and matrimonial love. The Puritans were no prudes. One pastor said that if this mutual love is eclipsed for but a day or even an hour, the husband and wife are, quote, as a bone out of joint. There is no ease, no order, no work well done till they are restored and set in joint again. Some of you need a marriage chiropractor. Well, we ought to consider as well the benefit of this type of mutual love. The idea of living in a godly marriage, that's what we're looking at. This is kind of the predicate for what Paul is talking about here in Colossians chapter 3. We don't want to make it so sterile that we can't enjoy marriage. We don't want these passages to become so rigidly applied that they're no fun for us. I, God intended marriage to be fun. I'm not going get, to get, get silly with you about it, but you, you ought to be able to enjoy your marriage in the context of what God intended it to be. Two people brought together, uniquely adapted and equipped to be with each other. We'll talk more about that, but God gave you exactly what you needed and who you have. Knowing your intricacies, your ins, your outs, your foibles, your failures, you live with each other in harmony, predicated upon a mutual love that looks past the ordinary and the mundane and sees in the person to whom God has given you the joy that God intended you to know. A reflection of what the relationship between Christ and the church is. Well, this benefit of this mutual love is universal in nature, there's a universal benefit. This type of mutual love makes everything in a marriage easy, while its absence, of course, makes everything hard. Who wants to be in a loveless marriage? That's hard. That's very hard. That can be a real challenge. God's ordained purpose in marriage, of course, is to allow there to be a companionship that brings about a meeting of each other's needs, not something that becomes so sterile that it becomes callous and cold and hard. We know what the Scripture has to say about living with people who are difficult. We'll talk more about that later. We don't want to be contentious people, bitter people, so much so that you're better off to sit in the corner of a rooftop than be in the same room with your spouse. And if there's mutual love presence, then this will, be, this will not be the case. William Watley said this, Love seasons and sweetens all estates. Love breaks and composes all controversies. Love overrules all passions. It squares all actions. It is, in a word, the king of the heart, which in whom it prevails to them is a marriage itself, a pleasing combination of two persons into one home, one purse, one heart, and one flesh. Thank you, Pastor Watley. Love, he said then, is therefore the sum of all the duties that a husband and wife owe to each other. One pastor said, being linked together by the bond of marital love is true wedlock. And where love fills the heart, the feet, hands, and lips move easily in the service of the one loved. But where love is lacking, duties are either neglected or performed in a hypocritical, slothful, and careless manner. Thank you, Pastor Gouge. What a name. 
Pastor Richard Steele, another Puritan pastor, said this, True-hearted love will bring true contentment and constant comfort into marriage. We'll make all counsels and reproofs acceptable. We'll keep out jealousy, that bane of marriage comfort. We'll keep the thoughts fixed and the heart chaste, for it is not, ha- it's not the having a husband or wife, but the loving of them that preserves them together. And that preserves and protects against infidelity. He goes on to say that this will prevent or soon quiet storms within doors. And he gives a funny example in the context of this mutual love of, of loving each other, what it can get through, he says it's much like the mother that dearly loves her child, though it cry all night and disturb her quiet, yet loves it, but yet to love it makes them very good friends in the morning. <laughs> you might want to remind, be reminded of that, Derek. <laughs> Importantly, too, this mutual love motivates the husband to do all the good he can. So that love stirs up the wife's love to repay good for good. You know, sometimes an occasion I've had to do some counseling in marriage and the, the guy will say something to me like, well, she doesn't seem to care for me very much. She never really helps me out. She, I don't know. And I'll say, well, are you helping her out very much, bucko? What are you doing? Are you loving her? That's a two-way street. You need to be friendly to have friends. You need to be a good lover to have a lover. Get with the program. So love motivates the husband to do good. We'll see that in the context of what Paul says in verse 19. The husband in the context of loving the wife, the sacrificial love, the love that gives up itself in order to push her forward and to lift her above himself even. One pastor said, love is like fire, which is not only hot in itself, but also conveys heat from one to another. No one likes a cold marriage. No one likes a cold marriage. Well, there's contentment that comes as well from this mutual love. This mutual love causes the husband to settle his affections on his wife, that he sees her as the fittest woman that the world could have afforded him, and the wife to to so rest her heart upon her husband that she esteems him the most fit man for her of any under the sun. Love fills the heart with such contentment that the wife will not seek affection from another man and the husband will not set his eyes upon another woman. Rather, they will love each other fervently, cheerfully, dotingly, and fulsomely. That's from Pastor Bolton. Being motivated by this grace of love, the husband will overlook his wife's defects, cover her infirmities, supplement her weaknesses, and see her as his queen. Likewise, the wife will overlook her husband's failures, cover his imperfections, and see him as her prince. I like the way the Puritans write about these things because there is a sense in which there is a great esteem for each other, not driven by some rigid and cold application of rules and regulations, but rather out of a heart that is truly in love with the other person. And that's what the Lord intended. That's what the Lord intended. Well, what are the grounds for mutual love that exist in a marriage? What would be the basis? Well, there can be several grounds of love between a husband and wife. First and foremost is that they are special gifts 
bestowed by God upon each other. Think about that for a minute. Who did God bring into your life? Keep in mind that your wife is fitted and fashioned by God's own hand to be your helpmeet, husbands. And likewise, he is the husband whom God has appointed to be the wife's spiritual leader, guide, and protector in life. And this ground alone endears them to each other and demands a love that excels all other loves. God has uniquely fitted you together, brought you together, just like he formed Eve to be a helpmeet for Adam. There was such a bond between the two of them in the context of how God had designed and brought them together that there was a great love between the two of them. We also have the idea that, that, um, that the husband and wife belong to each other properly and uniquely in a way that differs from how they belong to anyone else in the world. We've lost sight of this today because marriage has become so casual and throwaway and easy in the context of, of whatever the world has to say about it. But for God's structured order in creation, God brings two people together who are uniquely fitted for each other. So this peculiar or singular interest in a person is a strong ground for a special and singular love for that person. This person is unique for you. There's also a union that's brought about, as we know. A husband and wife are joined together in a way that makes them as one. Genesis 2.24. Marriage is a spiritual, legal, and sexual union of two persons into one flesh. It is the nearest relationship in the entire world, nearer than that between parents and children, and therefore demands the strongest love. I'm going to have more to say about this, but there's a lot of issues that come out of a marriage when the children eclipse the love between the husband and the wife. The children are not the first priority in your marriage, in your relationship. Your first priority is to your spouse. That's how God ordained it. One pastor wrote this, the foundation that must bear upon this love in the spring, which must feed and nourish this love, is not only or chiefly the commendable parts and endowments that are in each of you, but the near relation into which you are entered, being now no more two but one flesh and uniquely fitted together by God's sovereign purpose. Do you see yourself that way in the context of your marriage? Well, we could say much more about this, and I think you get the idea. There are other bases for marriage. There's necessity. A man and woman need each other. The, man, the husband and wife should look upon each other as a help and companion they cannot live without. Having been joined together by God, it is not good for either of them to be alone. And this mutual necessity breeds mutual love. And as a husband loves his wife, he exhibits that love which Christ has for his church. And as the wife loves the husband, she honors Christ and the command that is given and does so with a heart that's pointed towards glorifying God in her conduct and her behavior, knowing that God does all things well. Now again, my concern is that I say things like that and you go home and you kind of just rigidly apply these things. Well, this is who God gave me, I've got to love him. And you kick the dog and you slam the door. Well, that's not what it's about. 
Now, I'm not saying there aren't rocky roads and there aren't bumps, and nor is Paul, and nor the Scripture. We, we recognize that there can be issues, but we have to understand that in the context of what Paul is speaking to here, and the idea of submission, husbands loving, that he's pointing to us that there is a principle that ought to govern the relationship between the husband and the wife. There ought to be joy and contentment. That should be the primary overarching presence within the marriage. Now, I know that isn't always achieved, and I know that marriage can be very difficult, and that people can be mean, and people can be hard, and they can say unbelievable things, and they can do insanely bad things in marriages. But my exhortation to you is to remember that in the context of the gospel, we have one who forgives, and one who saves, and one who restores, and one who redeems. And we cannot lose sight of that in the context of our own marriages. You are married to a sinner. That sinner needs grace every single second of every single day. You need to pray for your spouse. You need to encourage your spouse in the Word. But you have to remember that you married a sinner. And by the way, you're no saint. We lose sight of this. The gospel, a gospel-driven marriage is one which keeps Christ central in the context of forgiving, forgetting, moving forward, lovingly embracing each other, not carrying grudges, exemplifying the mutual love that you have for each other by being, by being overwhelmed and consumed by God's good providence and bringing such a wonderful person into your life. Now, of course, Satan doesn't want you to see it that way. Satan wants you to focus on the failures, on the foibles, on the disappointments, on the lack of what you think is the things that aren't present. That's what he wants. But for us in Christ, we see these people as redeemed saints as we are, living for the Lord, looking to the Lord, striving yet struggling in the context of our own sanctification, knowing that Jesus will finish it well for them. So, mutual love. Do you love your spouse? Now, I'm not talking about liking them. I'm talking about loving them. Do you love them? You know, it's interesting. Sometimes people will come to me and we'll talk about marriage in some context, and they'll say to me, well, pastor, I just can't stand them. Well, okay. Then they're, they're your neighbor. What do you do with a neighbor? Love them. Well, in the Bible, that's your spouse. You're supposed to love them. Well, you know what? I can't stand them still. Well, then they're your enemy. Guess what? You got to love them. You got to love them. We lose sight of the fact that the Lord has a plan and a purpose in the context of marriage, has a plan and a purpose for a structured society that is built upon the strength of a good marriage, a solid home, and we Christians ought to be those who exemplify that. Now, again, I'm not going to say it's always perfect, and it's not. And by God's grace, he makes ways and provisions for that. But those are to be the exception and not the rule. And in the context of working through issues within a marriage, we need to be reminded of who we are, that you're married to a sinner, and that there's a basis for mutual love in Christ for each other. And you move on from there. And we could spend much more about that. But next Sunday, we're going to talk a little bit more about 
the duties that are attendant within a marriage and what it looks like when there is a biblical form of submission and a biblical form of love between the husband and the wife in terms of the performance of certain duties within a marriage. A wife has certain duties and a husband has certain duties. And they're not duties that are to be performed begrudgingly, but to be done joyfully and with a glad heart and knowing that God has ordained these things in order to keep things in a structured and a glorified way um, in, his, in, in his perspective. So if you have any questions you want to ask me personally about marriage, I'd be happy to sit down and talk to you and we can work through some of the things that might be troubling you. But first and foremost, um, you'll need to understand that uh, in the context of the gospel, um, God has changed your heart and he has changed the heart of your spouse if they're a believer. And I would trust that you are working through these issues that you have on your own in the context of understanding the gospel and what God calls you to do in terms of forgiveness. You know, keep in mind, in a marriage, you're supposed to what? Forbear, forgive, be patient. By the way, verse 12 doesn't get removed from a marriage. It's still there. You still have to be, have a heart of compassion, right? You still have to be kind and humble, gentle, and patient. So we'll start there. And we'll move forward from there. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the exhortations that you've given us. Thank you for the institution of marriage. You have ordained it. Help us to esteem it highly. The, the idea of holy matrimony, something that you have significantly and purposefully created and ordained for us to give us structure and to provide a means to have uh, an enjoyable relationship with each other. As you have ordained, help us to recognize its importance, help us to protect it, help us to cherish it as you have given it to us. We praise you in Christ's name. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for keeping us um, secure in the finished work of Christ, in whose name we pray and rejoice. Amen.